and let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our guide. Amen. A cold coming we had of it. Just the worst time of year for a journey and such a journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. And the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on the slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women, and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters, and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly, and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. And at the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches with voices singing in our ears, saying, this was all folly. These beginning verses of T.S. Eliot's Journey of the Magi invite us to a journey. Told from the viewpoint of one of the Magi, the poem holds within it its imagination, the inhabited world of those who received a celestial sign and pulled up stakes to make their way to a place where, as the story goes, the king is born. One commentary said, from Matthew's point of view, the three magi were authentic spiritual seekers. And even though their methodology was stargazing, they discovered a remarkable truth that transcended their immediate context and led them into alien territory. In a surprising location far from home, they found what they had been searching for in the birth of a child to a young peasant woman. In times of great unrest, whether these days when it sometimes feels as if everything that has held this planetary project together is coming unglued, or the time thousands of years ago when a people who had been on a very long journey to a land of promise were in exile from that land, or in the time when that peasant child was born, when kings like Herod were up to slaughtering tiny children that might threaten his kingship. The search is on for answers, for light, for something to quell all that stirs in the dark hours. And as we make our way towards some destination that might address the unrest in our lives, we wait also for a guiding star. I suspect for most of us, the story of the Magi that is part of the Christmas narrative blends in with the arrival of angels in the sky to shepherds. Most of our crushes that we might display at home at this time of year have all the holy pilgrims, the three kings, the shepherds, and the angels at the threshold of the cattle stall at the lip of the manger. 
Most of the church Christmas pageants that I've seen have three kings, often clad in bathrobes, tripping up the aisle, laden with their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they are laid at the foot of the child. And stars shine over homes and businesses in Cambridge and Boston and Belmont. But today's text actually holds a critical distance from these charming appropriations. As a matter of fact, they offer a rare opportunity to put the narrative of the Magi, as T.S. Eliot has done, as key witnesses to both the threat and the promise of the Christ child. From the viewpoint of the Gospel of Matthew, the Magi's role in the narrative is more than just people searching, but it's an extension of God's intention to all nations and to the end of the earth. God's search is one that is always full and inclusive, that challenges any presumptive claim that those on the inside know the full truth of God's love and mercy. The Magi were magicians and astrologers, likely from Babylon, who studied the heavens for portents of significance. They were taken into a foreign land because the sign of a star's rising indicated the birth of a king. And so it makes sense that they made their way to Jerusalem, to the king's palace, to inquire about the birth. There is a lovely innocence in the conversation between the Magi and the standing king, Herod. The Magi stumble in with the query, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. Their eyes on fire with the light that they have seen, their hearts ablaze with the longing to find the one on whom the sun and moon and stars hang. And the king's response is, of course, to twist the narrative to his own purposes. Go and find me the child, he says, with his hands rattling together, face draining of color, because I want to worship him. Herod must have taken these three magi for fools, and so they answer him in a sort of matched engagement. Yes, of course. Indeed, there is something so compelling but also so upsetting about this exchange between the Magi and Herod. Like all great stories, it leaves us unsettled, anticipating an outcome that is far from sweet and innocent. It is there in the jagged snarl of the king. And it sets us on edge because we see a family who has traveled far from home, are on their own journey, being implicated by the guileless magi and the plotting king. The child of Bethlehem is a threat to the powers that be. In the star that rose, that was seen by the seekers and seers from outside his tradition, and from his own rising at the dawn of the newness on Easter Day, this one who comes to us in swaddling cloths, turns even those who hold reaching power to face their own powerlessness. Indeed, the Magi were on a journey where their great epiphany was experienced at a time in history 
when anything but light was dawning. And the light they follow leads to a child whose people in days of old had been promised a great light. And we can only imagine the hearts that leap as those exiles in times gone by in Babylon, yes, the place where the seers came from, heard the prophet Isaiah's words, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And though the child's people have lived through very dark, very scary, unspeakably upsetting days where all they have known is swept away, now the picture changes. They lift their eyes to the promise of what they never thought they would see. The gathering of the clan, the diaspora, the scattered sons and daughters held in their swaddling cloths are carried home, and the true homecoming of God's light takes them, these magi and the people of Israel, to the light of God's mercy. Epiphany sets us on our own journey of seeking. I suspect for many of us, this journey is one that has contours that we'd rather not disclose or even admit. It's tempting in our faith journey to skip over the rough stuff. But like our lives, both individually and in our larger society, the rough stuff finds us. Most often, God comes to the down and out or to the most down and out in our own lives. And what is quite complicated in this is that there are times when the story or the ending or the momentous journey leads us to face the last horizon, our own end. And that may paradoxically be the very place where we begin. I think T.S. Eliot captures this in the rest of his poem. Hear the voice of the Magi. Then at dawn we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a water mill beating the darkness and three trees on a low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow, then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information, and so we continued, and arrived at evening not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, and I remember, and I would do it again, but set down, this set down, this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but thought they were different, and this birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our own death. We return to our palaces, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I would be glad of another death. Indeed, Eliot's magi wonder at what they seek and also what they find. 
and the arrival sets them on another journey, a journey of life and death. They return to their old world no longer at ease with the way things were. They return realizing that the very thing that most of us run like fury to escape our ending, our death, is in a very mysterious way the place we begin. And at the end of their seeking, the wise men discover a truth that transcends all others, that their seeking is both rewarded and honored, as they are the first, those outsiders, to proclaim Christ as the promised ruler of Israel. So my question to you this day, my brothers and sisters, what are you seeking? What are the dimensions of your life that you would rather hold at bay because they are too upsetting or too unsettling or too true or too precious to disclose? I think of Marilyn Robinson's book, Lila, as a story where the light of epiphany shines out. One of the book reviewers describes the book as a series of quiet epiphanies, and I couldn't agree more. The story begins with the child Lila, stolen by a woman and taken from abuse. That woman raises her on the run. Fast forward. When Lila steps into his church one rainy Sunday morning, the Reverend John Adams Ames, sorry, John Ames, is startled with embarrassment. He stops preaching, looks at her, and then looks away. Ames has lived in the Iowan town of Gilead all his life, and at 67 is a confirmed widower. Since his wife's death and childbirth many years earlier, he has been introduced to many potential wives but none has tempted him to leave his veil of tears. Lila, the stranger half his age, who hides a knife in her garter and has worse secrets besides, changes everything. After they are married, Ames tells her, I felt as though I recognized you somehow. It was a remarkable experience, it was. And Lila remains cautious in her response, but you really don't know much about me. Her marriage to the local preacher Ames, the birth of a child, and living with death are but a few epiphanies. But other quiet epiphanies shine out in this book. Pastor Ames is a sort of Midwestern Moses. Once he noticed a bush glimmering with fireflies. He stepped into the ditch and touched it, and the fireflies rose out of it like a cloud of light. Or when, before they are married, Lila sees a mourning woman lay her head on Ames' shoulder, Lila blushed to think how good it must have felt to her to rest her head that way. And as they inch toward intimacy, Lila does rest her head on the old man's shoulder, momentarily fulfilling Ames' uncertain appeal that, I hope sometimes you'll feel a little more at home, Lila. The power of that book for me is the wrestling that Marilyn Robinson does with the grand and troubling theological epiphanies, not unlike those articulated by the Magi in Eliot's poem. And at the core of the story is the complicated love that wings its way into life. 
And what is most satisfying about that love in the book and the love that arises from the Magi's search is that the search leads to God and that it takes its cues from a God who searches for us. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee, St. Augustine is recorded as writing. And I might propose that God's heart is restless until God resides in us. Quiet epiphanies. Perhaps that's what we seek. Just the chance to lean our head on the soft shoulder of a loved one. Just one time when we can speak the healing word to a troubled friend. Just once when that child, when children's innocence extends to the most jaded adult. Just once when we witness the rising in the east. Once when we are startled awake from all that keeps us asleep. Once when rattled Herods of our day have sent us out on a search. And we may just find the true light that enlightens all of us. And that light shines out of all that is fearsome within us, all that shakes us to the core and draws our eyes upward to the dazzling star that leads us to the child who awaits our coming in life and in death and in life to come. And we may just find ourselves going home by another way, because the old, well-trodden path may not be the one we can stomach again. And we might just see something along the way that changes our life. Yes, our life. And what we may see is the face of the child. Thanks be to God. Amen.